Chapter 5, Part 1 of The Greater Life and Work of Christ. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Wilson. The Greater Life and Work of Christ by Alexander Patterson. Jesus Christ, Christ in His Present State and Work, Part 1. The New Testament contains three distinct revelations. They are given respectively by Jesus Himself and through Paul and John. The first is contained in the Gospels, the second in the Epistles, and the third is the Revelation. These occur successively as to time and order, and each succeeding revelation is an advance upon the previous one and contains a larger and different view of Christ. Jesus had told his disciples, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Albeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he shall guide you into all the truth, for he shall not speak from himself, but whatsoever things he shall hear, these shall he speak, and he shall declare unto you the things that are to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine, and shall declare it unto you. All things whatsoever the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I, that he taketh of mine, and shall declare it unto you. This is Christ's own statement, that his people should have a fuller revelation of himself through the Spirit than he himself gave them. These revelations of Christ are found in the Acts and Epistles and the Apocalypse. The special medium of the next of these revelations of Christ was Paul. All the other apostles and disciples were also taught of the Spirit, and their writings are of equal inspiration with those of Paul, and teach the same truths. But Paul was, as Christ said, a chosen vessel, converted by the personal appearance and word of Christ himself. He places himself before us in these words, five times repeated, and as no other ever does. Be ye followers of me. He thus speaks of his message. For I make known to you, brethren, as touching the gospel, which was preached by me, that it is not after man. For neither did I receive it from man, nor was I taught it. But it came to me through revelation of Jesus Christ. He wrote half the New Testament. All we have of Christianity on earth today, certainly the best of it, is the result of Paul's work, as the labors of the twelve are nearly unknown to us. Here then, in Paul's writings, we may look for that fuller revelation of Christ, which he himself said the Holy Spirit should give. In the titles applied to Christ in the epistles will be found the apostolic view of his present office, dignity, and work. The name Jesus, used in the Gospels, seldom occurs in the epistles, except in combination with other names or titles, and is less and less used as time passes. So also Jesus' own favorite title, the Son of Man, occurs but once. Both are associated with his humiliation. In passing, there is noticeable a difference in the names applied to Christ by the different apostles. Peter alone applies the full name and title, Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul alone uses the title, Our Great God and Savior Jesus Christ. John alone speaks of the Son, the simple title the Lord was the designation used by the disciples when speaking of him among themselves. 
it is the title christ himself approved of in the words ye call me master and lord and ye say well for so i am it is spoken of thus by paul no man can say jesus is lord but in the holy spirit it is expressive of his relationship to those who receive him and therefore the title for the church the title king is not applied to christ in the epistles in his relationship to the believer or the church it does not express the view of christ in his present state presented by the apostles either to the world or the church to speak of him as my king or our king as is customary with many devout believers does not express the scriptural accurate and close present relation christ bears to the believer or to the church paul uses it only in his prophetic doxologies christ is the great title of the epistles it is used without the article the term the christ is only used by the new testament writers when israelites are addressed or the israelite relationship to christ or that idea in some way involved it is equivalent to the messiah which is israel's title exclusively neither of these are therefore properly applied to christ from the world or christian standpoint the combined name jesus christ expresses his personality and office it identifies jesus of nazareth as the christ of israel and christ of the church and of the world paul's peculiar title is christ jesus no other writer applies this as will be seen from the revised version he uses this when he wishes to emphasize the office of christ and the more common title jesus christ when he has his personality in mind the first looks to his present spiritual relations and word as in the text we preach not ourselves but christ jesus as lord the other refers more particularly to the past and his redemptive work as jesus christ and him crucified the latter describes the historical order of the work of christ the former the order in which we recognize and enjoy him he must be christ to us before we can love him in the more personal relationship the apostles do not stop with these well-known names and titles they glorify their lord and ours by the most exalted terms their doxologies abound in such titles as lord of glory prince of life only potentate king of kings and lord of lords the king eternal incorruptible invisible the only god all these however have a prophetic outlook and do not come within our present field of study christ of the present in preaching christ the apostles kept clearly in mind three classes the jew the gentile and the church of god a very noticeable difference will be observed in their presentation of christ to each of these these three israel the church and the world must be kept distinctly in mind in the study of christ's present state and work another classification of the message as to the person and work of christ will be considered they viewed christ as past present and future are christ historical christ living and christ predicted to israel jewish proselytes in attendance on the synagogue they presented christ as the one foretold in the prophecies and showed the fulfillment of jesus of nazareth and asserted that he was the christ or messiah the death of christ was presented as having a special reference to israel it was a special redemption for them 
as caiaphas unwittingly prophesied jesus should die for the nation this death of christ for israel is regarded from the standpoint of his taking a place among them and thereby sharing their responsibility under the mosaic law and incurring the penalty of their violation of it the awful curse pronounced on israel as sprinkled with blood they filed into the promised land rested upon christ and he died for israel to redeem them from it so paul presented christ to the galatian church which was a judaized church and therefore to bring them back to the liberty of the gospel he presented christ from this standpoint he represented christ as born under the law that he might redeem them which are under the law and that christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us for it is written cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree this is israel's view of christ the curse of the law rested only on those who had the law and no nation but israel had it given them or was commanded to obey it it was israel's law only it began hear o israel the curse of this violated law of israel was that which christ bore the world has another plane of condemnation and another doom but this curse of the law is israel's exclusively paul as an israelite had a place under this gospel preached to israel and could therefore include himself in this and say christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law the epistle to the hebrews which was written to hebrews gives us the view of christ in his present state as presented to israel it is simply a spiritual exposition of the levitical law or rather that part of it referring to the high priest's office it presents the christ in his mediatorial and intercessory work in figures an israelite would understand the culminating point is in this passage but christ having come a high priest of the good things to come through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is to say not of this creation nor yet through the blood of goats and calves but through his own blood entered in once for all into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption this presents the central rite in the levitical ritual and shows its meaning having made this central type clear all the rest will arrange itself in intelligible order the mediatorial work of christ is guarded from being set forth in a purely israelitish light by the reference to melchizedek as the type of the high priest the great lesson of this book is in the urgings to faith in and faithfulness to the unseen high priest who is passed within the veil his dignity is shown by comparison with prophets and angels and his sympathy for his people by his being made like unto his brethren the sin of rejecting christ is shown by the figure of trampling underfoot the sacred blood of the covenant it is the strongest plea possible to make with an israelite or any believer to hold fast which word is the keynote of the epistle there may be advanced against this view of the gospel of israel the texts there is no distinction between jew and greek for the same lord is lord of all and rich unto all that call upon him there can be neither jew nor greek there can be neither bond nor free there can be no male and female for ye are all one man in christ jesus these passages declare the equal salvability of all and the same standing of all in christ after being saved but do not refer to the presentation of the gospel leading to their salvation 
or the special scope of the death of Christ as affecting the two classes. The resurrection of Jesus is the great fact held to by the apostles as proof to Israel that he was the Christ. They advance it and attest it personally. It did not seem to be questioned by the Jews in the days of the apostles. They were not incredulous as to the supernatural as were the Greeks. This and the scriptural proof of the position of Jesus as the Messiah were sufficient for those who were of sincere mind and ready to follow the truth. A special feature of Christ as presented to Israel by the apostles was his coming as the Messiah in glory. This was the great view of Israel and their desire. In Jesus they failed to see their Messiah of glory. After his ascension, his disciples expected the Messiah's kingdom of glory would immediately appear. Neither Jesus nor the apostles corrected this expectation as to the fact of such a kingdom, but only as to its time, manner of appearing, nature, and the characteristics of those who should enter it. The apostles held out to Israel the coming of such a Messiah and his kingdom as they expected. Peter so presented this truth as an incentive to repentance and makes the facts of his first coming the proof of his coming as the Christ or the Messiah. Repent ye therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that so there may come seasons of refreshing from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who hath been appointed for you, even Jesus, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, whereof God spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. In the preaching of Christ to the world by the apostles, there are noticeable very great changes of several kinds. There is, first of all, a studied disregard of the earthly life of Jesus. This is true also to a great extent in the presentation of Christ to the church and to Israel. In the Acts and in the Epistles especially, there is almost total omission of the story of the four Gospels up to the events of the death of Christ. There are a few brief allusions to his birth, temptation, and transfiguration, and one or two general remarks, such as that he went about doing good and healing all that were possessed with the devil. And that is all up to the crucifixion. Of all those mighty miracles, not one is related or even mentioned specifically. Of all the parables of Jesus, not one is repeated, nor do the apostles ever preach upon any word of Jesus as a text. That whole great life is passed over in silence, which is evidently intentional. Indeed, Paul says as to it all, Wherefore we henceforth know no man after the flesh, even though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now we know him so no more. As has been seen, even his earthly name, Jesus, is little used, and less and less as the time passes. This same passing by of the life of Jesus is noticeable in the Apostles' Creed, which passes at once from born of the Virgin Mary to suffered under Pontius Pilate. In answer to the inquiry as to why such disregard of all this life of Christ, it is sufficient to reply that they had a greater view to present, and they would not allow the lesser to detract attention from it. It is no disparagement to say the Christ of the Acts and Epistles is larger than the Christ of the Gospels. He himself has so increasingly revealed himself from the first. There is another reason. As has been noted, Jesus came as an Israelite to Israel only as he said, 
I was not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus came under the law. He lived under it, and kept its ordinances, and preached it, and sent inquirers to it, saying, What is written in the law? This do, and thou shalt live. Paul writes of the earthly life of Jesus as follows. For I say that Christ has been made a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, that he might confirm the truth given unto the fathers. Jesus lived under the old covenant. Calvary had not yet come. The law was still in force. Therefore he himself referred them to the coming teachings of the Spirit, saying, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all the truth. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine, and shall declare it unto you. Here is a distinct promise of a larger revelation of Christ. This greater Christ was the Christ Paul preached. The apostles did not preach Christ to the world, as the babe of Bethlehem, or the meek and lowly Nazarene, or the great prophet or teacher, or hold him up only as the example of a holy life, bidding the world follow him. One may so look at Christ, and yet be far from being one of his. John Stuart Mill said, Nor would it be easy for even an unbeliever to find a better translation of the rule of virtue from the abstract into the concrete than to endeavor so to live that Christ would approve our life. Yet he remained an unbeliever. Napoleon said, Between him, Jesus, and whoever else in the world, there is no possible comparison. But he did not repent of his butcheries of thousands of human lives. Strauss wrote, Jesus remains the highest model of religion within the reach of our thoughts, and then proceeded to reduce all the narratives of Jesus' miracles to a series of myths. The Christ of the Gospels is more largely studied and preached today than any other. Indeed, some know no other Christ. They think they are preaching Christ when dwelling on some feature of his earthly nature or work or some incident in his life. Now all this is useful and is a proper field for study and preaching, and all the Gospels and their beautiful lessons are ours. But the great fact remains that none of this nor all of this is preaching Christ. The world cannot be saved by the babe of Bethlehem, nor the prophet of Galilee. The lowly Nazarene is not the Christ of the church, nor Christ for the world. Jesus, weeping over Jerusalem, did not save it and cannot save us. It is not the tears of Jesus to which we look for forgiveness, and which we plead at the throne of grace. Faith in Christ as the mighty wonder-worker is not that which he seeks. Admiration for his holy life and wonderful words is not faith in Christ. Receiving Jesus as leader, as distinguished from Buddha or Muhammad, or any other, is not coming to Christ. All this may be preliminary and preparatory to a saving faith in Christ, and lead one to consider Christ truly, but all is coming short until Christ is seen as the crucified one. There is a noticeable difference in the presentation of the gospel to the world from that preached to Israel. The gospel is preached to the world is found partly in the messages of the apostles to the Gentiles, as recorded in the book of Acts, particularly those of Paul. For we have scarcely any other whose addresses to the Gentiles are given. The epistles also, to a certain extent, 
show christ as preached to the world for the churches to whom they were addressed were drawn out from the gentiles cornelius in whose house peter preached was a righteous man and one that feared god and well reported of by all the nations of the jews he was undoubtedly a proselyte and therefore was addressed as the jews were the sermon of paul on mars hill to the athenians illustrates the presentation of the gospel to the world by paul it was doubtless this same view he presented to felix who sent for paul and heard him concerning the faith in christ jesus and as he reasoned of righteousness temperance and judgment to come felix was terrified so also paul preached at lystra these were evidently awakening messages delivered to dead souls and would have been followed by presenting christ more fully how paul preached christ we learn from the account he himself gives of his gospel in corinth which he declares was as follows now i make known unto you brethren the gospel which i preached unto you which also ye received wherein also ye stand by which also ye are saved i make known i say in the what words i preached it unto you if ye hold it fast except ye believed in vain for i delivered unto you first of all that which i also received how that christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he hath been raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to cephas then to the twelve then he appeared to about five hundred brethren at once of whom the greater part remain until now but some are fallen asleep then he appeared to james then to all the apostles and last of all as unto one born out of due time he appeared unto me also he wrote before as to this gospel i determined not to know anything among you save jesus christ and him crucified it will be observed that this is first of all a recital of facts the gospel then consists first of all of a series of facts it does not consist of opinions or speculations of a philosophical kind or even chiefly of doctrine so called christ his death and resurrection are the vital facts of christianity the proof and meaning of the death of christ is indicated by the phrase according to the scriptures the scriptures being the old testament scriptures here then is substantial agreement with the view given to israel but there is not the same fullness of detail anywhere given either in the addresses in the acts or in the epistles the epistles were written to the church but they were churches drawn out from the gentiles mostly and therefore the presentation of christ to them shows how he was also preached to the world although as we shall see they give to the church a far larger view than to the world in the epistles to the gentile churches there is a noticeable paucity of references to the mosaic law or age as proof or illustration of the person or work of christ paul makes no account of it as presenting christ omitting hebrews which was written to the hebrews and therefore out of this view and galatians written to the judaized church there are but few appeals of any kind to the mosaic law or any of its types or ceremonies there are a few illustrative references such as to the passover and illustrative warnings from israel's failures these indicate how the scriptures were used in presenting christ to the world 
for if so little reference is made and of such a desultory kind in messages to christian churches we may conclude as little or less reference was made in preaching christ to the world we are obliged to take notice of this singular omission on the part of the one so full of the old testament as paul and so capable of using it paul tells us that abraham and not moses was the father of all them that believe and that the gospel was first preached unto him and that he was saved by faith and that circumcision was given him as a seal of his faith and not as a bond or badge of the law which did not come until four hundred years after and that this subsequent law could not be retroactive and besides was only temporary in its purpose a schoolmaster to bring us to christ and was fulfilled and finished by christ having blotted out the bond written in ordinances that was against us which was contrary to us and he hath taken it out of the way nailing it to the cross that the law never could nor did save and cannot now is shown by this scripture for there is a disannulling of a foregoing commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness for the law made nothing perfect and a bringing in thereupon of a better hope through which we draw nigh unto god we are brought back again to the way of faith found by abraham and all intervening ordinances are laid aside in short the apostle paul sweeps away the whole mosaic superstructure down to the abrahamic foundation and upon that erects the new edifice of christian doctrine life and church polity now to base upon the mosaic law the teachings of the death of christ would confer an importance upon it by so attaching it to the gospel as to practically impose it upon the young churches especially those accessible to the judaizing teachers whom paul so strenuously opposed all this however does not detract from the use of all we find in the mosaic law to illustrate the general work of christ indeed it is preserved to us for this purpose and is rightly and most profitably so used but it requires for its understanding a scriptural education equivalent to that of the condition of the ancient israelite and this often does not exist especially in miscellaneous communities and audiences therefore the ceremonies and sacrifices convey no meaning of a spiritual or even religious kind to many and even are a hindrance to understanding the gospel the offering of a thousand oxen and the attendant dividing of the bodies and parts and washings and sprinklings of the blood and burning of parts and eating of other parts convey no specially religious ideas to such the hearers need previous instruction we are presenting christ through the ceremonies and sacrifices of the mosaic law to those ignorant of them we do doctrinally what the judaizing teachers did practically and narrow the spread of the gospel to those who are able thus to receive it while paul has omitted the mosaic law as proof or even illustration of the person and nature and work of christ for the church in the world he has preserved every essential and universal and eternal truth wrapped up in it the great treatise in which christ is set forth as the savior of the world is the epistle to the romans the world's capital was appropriately chosen as the recipient of a systematic exposition of the world's gospel the epistle to the romans begins by showing man his need of salvation this in contrast to the gospel to israel 
who whatever their spiritual blindness had some idea of sin and man's state conscience was alive and quickened by the ceaseless round of sacrifices and cleansings and confessions but the world is dead to the sense of sin as well as dead in sin paul first makes an expose of the state of man the picture is true to life as the heathen acknowledge when it is shown them human nature is as the scripture shows us it and we see it when the cover is taken from some rotting plague spot unless a true idea is formed of human nature the scriptural accounts of the work of christ will not be understood this state of man in sin is declared in scripture to be the result and penalty of holding down the truth in unrighteousness the world once had the truth and has yet god's witnesses to it creation is such a witness as we considered in that chapter he further states that man has another witness in himself when the gentiles which have no law do by nature the things of the law these having no law are law unto themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience bearing witness therewith in their thoughts one with another accusing or else excusing them the state of the world spiritually is thus described for we before laid to the charge both of jews and greeks that they are all under sin as it is written there is none righteous no not one there is none that understandeth there is none that seeketh after god they have all turned aside they are together become unprofitable there is none that doeth good no not so much as one the world is further described as in darkness children of wrath living in the wicked one jesus had foretold the meaning of his death for the world in these words a ransom for many a ransom is that which buys back a person or thing sold or forfeited jesus was this ransom or redemption the effect of the death of jesus was perfectly to fulfill and satisfy every pledge given and accepted not only by the multitudinous sacrifices and ceremonies of the israelitish church but to deliver as a ransom many long before israel as in the antediluvian age and up to moses and in the heathen nations and all from that to the end coming under this declaration in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is acceptable to him the redemption of christ for the world rests on a vastly wider foundation and has a vastly wider meaning than the israelitish or mosaic as noted it was contemplated in the eternal past and began to operate immediately after the fall the relationship in which christ died for the world is thus described as through one trespass the judgment came unto all men to condemnation even so through one act of righteousness the free gift came unto all men to justification of life for as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners even so through the obedience of the one shall the many be made righteous christ is here plainly declared to have taken his place at the head of the race as adam did and by the one act of righteousness namely his death brought the free gift of justification of life unto man the necessity of the death of christ for the world comes from the fact that mankind rested under the doom pronounced at the beginning in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die this sentence went out against the whole race as the presence of death proves and as the following scripture asserts therefore as through one man sin entered into the world 
and death through sin, and so death passed unto all men, for that all sinned. Sin is described in Scripture as a deadly plague, as poison, as a crime against nature. It is man's worst enemy. It has ruined earth and devastated heaven. It is treason against God. By its nature, effects, its manward and godward work, it deserves death. It is a capital crime. Therefore has God said, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Death is God's witness to that awful truth of man's guilt as a race, and conscience testifies to each individually. Yet Adam did not die. We have seen he was saved by the intervention of Christ, who became thereby responsible for his sin, and procured for him not only respite from instant death in the garden, as threatened, but also the hope of eternal life. We have seen that Christ followed with the same respite for all who showed their faith by obedience. A vast accumulation of sin and guilt and obligation was thus laid on Christ. This had to be met by him. It was thus Christ became the world's substitute, and so must become the world's sacrifice. The redemptive world work of Christ is thus declared by Paul. Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith by his blood, to show his righteousness because of the passing over the sins done aforetime in the forbearance of God, for the showing, I say, of his righteousness at this present season, that he might himself be just, and the justifier of him who hath faith in Jesus. The propitiation does not refer to God's feelings personally, so to speak. It was offended righteousness which must be propitiated. God could not pass by sin unnoticed or unpunished. It would not be right or just, or to put it as in the above passage, it would not be righteousness. Now God must be righteous as well as merciful. Justice is a right quality, and in God an unchangeable one, as all his divine attributes are. We see this unchanging justice in nature, who punishes impartially the violators of her laws. We see the necessity of it in society, where unpunished crime renders places uninhabitable, and in its last and fullest extremity is anarchy. God occupies a double relationship. He is a father to his children, but there are other beings beside his children. There are angels and devils. To all these he occupies the position of ruler. Now his attitude as father and ruler are very different. If God is to treat the wrongdoer as a child, it must be upon some grounds which will not impugn his justice. If God is to justify the ungodly, he must be justified in doing so. Otherwise, all other beings could complain, unjustly, of his partiality. Such treatment of man would be subversive of all moral government. Devils would have a right to the same immunity, and could charge God with favoritism and therefore injustice. All sinners in every age and every depth of sin could demand release from penalty. There would be no restraint either of the sinner or of sin and the universe would become a universal hell. The just, inexorable, unchangeable justice of God is the blessed barrier between all right and holy beings and such an awful possibility. The redemptive world work of Christ is described thus. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not reckoning unto them their trespasses. 
the word reconciling must be taken in its scriptural and not in its conversational meaning it means primarily not a change of feeling either in the world or in god but a change of relationship this is seen in this text that he might reconcile them both in one body unto god through the cross having slain the enmity thereby it was not that god had to be made willing to receive sinful man but that it had to be made right for him to do so it is not right to pass by sin and let sinners go unpunished as has been seen god must do right always there was but one way to accomplish both ends christ must bear man's guilt and penalty or an equal or satisfactory one this he did nor was it god's obliging christ to do this nor christ being more ready than god to suffer for man they are one in this as in all things it was god who so loved the world as to give his only begotten son for its salvation it was christ who loved us and gave himself for us the act of righteousness by which christ secured for the world this state of grace was his death it was not his holy life or his words of truth or his many miracles or spotless example to make this definite it is his cross which is spoken of as by which he accomplished this the cross of christ is not first the cross the christian bears but the cross christ himself died upon again the work of reconciling is said to be effected by his blood through him to reconcile all things unto himself having made peace through the blood of his cross blood is simply life the life thereof which is the blood thereof blood shed is therefore life given or taken christ having forfeited his life at the very beginning for man's life now pays the forfeit with his blood that is his life the death of christ was a satisfactory act of righteousness and answered the ends intended thereby it was not as has been said a quid pro quo our penal verdicts are not such theft and assault are not punished in kind but are adequately and satisfactorily punished such was christ's death it was satisfactory to god to angels to saints and even to devils not to be to sinners for whom he died the death of one great and good man is mourned more than the death of a number of worthless or vicious persons the one great and good life far outweighs the number of worthless ones so to use a still stronger figure the life of a man as has been said would outweigh in values the lives of a universe of insects so one life that of christ is a sufficient satisfaction for the whole of mankind and all existing beings of every kind only by this great scriptural meaning can the death of christ be adequately accounted for neither as an act of self-sacrifice nor as an example does it satisfy the expectations aroused by such a character or the claims of himself or the teachings of his apostles or previous scripture remembering that it was wholly voluntary there must have been a great necessity for such an act no one has a right to so voluntarily die unless there is a fully justifying gain or end as a mere spectacle of self-sacrifice it was akin to the exhibitions performed by heathen before their deities where they sometimes immolate themselves to win supposed merit or applause under strong excitement 
if the death of christ was only a self-permitted martyrdom for right then it could be paralleled a thousand times by the records of the martyrs or the giving of oneself for his country or for the saving of lives of others of which even the records of mere heroism can show equal examples only in the scriptural sense is any adequate meaning possible to the death of jesus christ no one has a right to read out the scripture meaning and read in another this is the very heart of scripture to refuse to see this in scripture is to violate every rule of literary and scriptural interpretation the holy spirit only responds to the truth therefore to fail to so present christ is to fail to have the power of the holy spirit it is more it is denying the lord who bought us and incurring the danger of being denied by him at the last day the death of jesus brought the world into salvable relations to god he can now be just and yet justify the ungodly this is the meaning of that scripture god was in christ reconciling the world unto himself not reckoning unto them their trespasses it was this state and age jesus spoke of when he announced the acceptable year of the lord which he came to introduce we call these years of grace and so they are god is dealing now with the world in grace in former ages he dealt in judgment and in law now all is changed the whole world is offered the gospel of the grace of god end of chapter five part one